I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is episode 60 of the Intercooler podcast. Uh, welcome back, everybody. And it's Monaco Grand Prix week. Um, so we're dedicating this episode of the podcast to the Monaco Grand Prix. Uh, before I go any further, excited about this weekend's race, Andrew? Yeah, I always am. There's, there's, there, there's a frisson, isn't there? There yeah. is always, there is always, and I, I have often thought, wondered why it is, because, you know, objectively, Monaco is a ridiculous place to go and race <laughs> cars, and, and with every passing year, it becomes even more ridiculous as the cars get, you know, bigger and wider and faster and, and, and everything else. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, of, you know there, there are kind of three races in the year that I get really excited about, which are Spa, Suzuka and, and, and Monaco. Um, and so that, absolutely. Um, it's just, it's just a, uh, I, I don't think there's a greater test of a racing driver than Monaco. Good. So yeah, that's why that's why I'll get excited about it. Okay. Well, well, we'll come back to that. We'll we'll be talking about the history of the race, the circuit itself, notable um, incidents, notable winners, notable Grand Prix. Um, hopefully, we'll tell you one or two things that you didn't know about the Monaco Grand Prix before. And we will also discuss whether or not it actually produces good races. That's maybe the most important point here, isn't it? Um, before we go any further, though, we just have to give you your weekly reminder about the Intercooler app. Um, we are now three weeks old, um, as of today, three weeks old. And, well, let me remind you what it's all about. It's a new kind of digital car magazine. It's the first car magazine of its type. It's ad-free, and it's delivered as an app, a mobile subscription app, with daily updates. And every day, there'll be at least one great story on there, written by a top-draw car journalist, or it might be a racing driver, or it might be, uh, you know, a, a renowned engineer. But somebody will be writing something interesting about cars, motorsport, engineering, or the people in the industry. Um, and the response so far, we've just been so encouraged by it. Um, people seem to be enjoying it. And so thank you. Sincerely, thank you to everybody who has subscribed so far um, and sent in your feedback as well. Um, what have we had up there recently? Well, today, Andrew, there's a really good piece from Andrew English in his sort of 
typically robust and rigorous fashion about yeah. Alfa Romeo. Yeah, I mean, just the past, present and future of Alfa Romeo and why, why this company, which, you know, on paper as a brand is so um, attractive and people just love it. And yet it, it just can't sort itself out. And, you know, and this, is, you know, this has been going on for decades um you know alfa romeo has been trying to find a future for itself um and you know andrew because he's such an amazing writer and because he has such profile in the industry you know he's spoken to all the people um and had all the conversations and so he goes back into you know he try i guess he tries to explain why the future is so difficult by explaining all the things that went wrong in the past and and, and also just how hard it is to sort of make those sorts of changes and um you know the endless procession of chief executives. You know the 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 ambitious targets never realised, um, and it's just. I mean, it's a kind of slightly sad read. I, I'm not. I wouldn't say that it necessarily had the most optimistic of uh, of, of endings. I mean, it wouldn't be wonderful if you know if he was to able to sign off and go well. But the great news is now this time it really is different. Um, but I don't think he feels that. Um, you know, obviously there's always you know the. I mean, I think particularly with um you know Stellantis and everything else there is certainly a a fresh opportunity but um yeah it's good go and have a look at it if you can it's a it's a great great read yeah and he as he always does he picks what might seem like a fairly dry topic and just makes it so readable and so informative that's what he does well um and just to give you some idea of the variety of stuff that we put up on the app um I went to the North Coast 500 in Scotland to drive the new Audi e-tron GT um Andrew wrote, and he won't tell you this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this on his behalf. He wrote a piece that more than one person has described as the best article about cars they've ever read. So if you want to, if you you want to read that, yeah, I'm, I'm done now. It's, it, it's a piece about the Ferrari Dino. So if you've got the app already, if you've subscribed already and you haven't read it, go and check it out. If you haven't subscribed, I promise you, it's worth starting your free trial just to read that piece. Um, there's a real variety of stuff up there. There will be plenty of articles that you'll find interesting, I promise you. And also, if you enjoy this week's podcast all about the Monaco Grand Prix, now is the time, if you've been waiting, to download the app, start your free trial, because this is Monaco GP week on the Intercool app. We're going to post a series of articles all about um, the Monaco Grand Prix, um, about its history, um, some things you've never read about it before, or some new perspectives um, on some famous stories from that place. Also, there'll be a, uh, a first-hand driver's eye account of what it's like to qualify um, an F1 car around that place, which I'm Karen Chandock is going to write that piece. We haven't seen it yet, but we're, I don't know, we're both pretty excited to see that copy yeah, land, absolutely. aren't we? Um, and so there you go. Go and download the app, start your free trial. If it's not for you, that's fine. It's the easiest thing in the world to cancel your subscription. You do it through the settings app on your phone, not within the TI app itself. Um, just go and check it out. Good. Promo over. Let's talk about the Monaco Grand Prix. Yay. Now, it's, <clears throat> I've coined this term legacy approval, right? It, it only happens now because it's, it's been approved by history, hasn't it? it? I think if you came along today proposing a Formula One Grand Prix around somewhere so densely populated, around a circuit so tight, so narrow, people would think you were mad. Um, But because it's been going on for the best part of 100 years, it gets to happen every year, which is, that's great, isn't it? 
Yeah, and just imagine, even though, you know, people do, and I think probably rightly criticise it um, for being, you know, a circuit where, you know, qualifying is disproportionately important and overtaking is so difficult and and you get these professional, you get these um, processional races. Just imagine how much poorer Formula One would be without it. Because it is, I guess it is just so different, and just visually, just to look at it. Uh, it's not even like other street circuits that they go to. It's just, I mean, it's crazy. It's so, what's the word, incongruous just to see racing cars. And, you know, I'm sure there'll be any number of people who have, um, who are listening to this, who have just gone, you know, because they've been in that part of the world, and they've just gone and driven a lap. Um, and, and just to go rather and think they actually race Formula One cars around here. I mean, it is there is a certain sort of wonderful, noble insanity about the whole thing, um, which, you know, quite aside from, you know, from, you know, the, the drivers that you get and how fast the cars. And you know, I think, you know, that is a sort of an, a dimension that Monaco gives you, which you don't really get anywhere else. That being said. OK, and I agree with you. But is it mm. <clears throat> is it a good place to hold a Formula One race? Does it? No, deliver- of course it isn't exciting races or are they are the vast majority of them processional um it, it's, the interesting it, about monaco it it, it never do, it only ever does one or the other doesn't it yeah i mean it's either what on earth did i turn this on for and why am i bothering or it is oh my goodness it's literally just you know bolt the doors turn the telephones off and just just watch you know, an extraordinary sporting spectacle unfold between your eyes. And the other problem is you never really know which one that you're going to get. Um, and I think most of them are probably in the sort of, you know, quite boring and processional. But there have been enough over the years so that every year you tune in, you think maybe this will be, I mean, maybe we'll get one this weekend. Maybe we'll get one of those things um, where something weird happens and then you get the most extraordinary spectacle. Mm. I haven't checked. I haven't checked the weather forecast actually, but that tends to play a role. Um, we've seen a few wet uh, Monaco Grand Prix, haven't we? And that makes a difference. Um, we also see a little bit of dastardly behaviour from time to time, don't we? <laughs> I don't know what you could be referring no. to. No, I mean we've seen Michael Schumacher in qualifying um, park his car. Where was it? It's towards the end of the lap, wasn't it? It was Rascasse, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. I think, yeah, I think it was right. the last corner. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, we saw Nico Rosberg dive down the escape road. Um, did he mean to? Don't know. That's part of the fun of it, isn't it? But oh, he... I had such I had such an argument. Who did I, I think it was Harris. <laughs> I had such an argument with someone over that. Yeah. I, 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 I was kind of in the Nico camp. I was in the sort yeah. of um, innocent till proven guilty camp, and he was absolutely not. He's completely <laughs> bagged to rights. Yeah, the point being that if you dive down that escape road, because the escape road is now occupied. The yellow flags have to come out, so the bloke behind you um, has to slow down. Has to slow down, and their their quality lap <laughs> and, is lap. and you're yeah. on pole. Yeah, I mean it's. <laughs> I don't know. You're quite right. Formula One would be a, a poorer place without this this uh, this circuit, this event. Even if yeah. you know the races tend to um, be a little bit processional. There are so many flashpoints and talking points as a result of this this Grand Prix that Formula One just kind of needs it, doesn't it? Now you um, talking of processional races lack of overtaking you posted a clip not from the grand prix itself but the historic grand prix recently um and oh, it, was, wow, it was a couple yeah. of weeks ago wasn't it and it, we saw jean alacy and marco Werner in a couple of 70s f1 cars a ferrari and a lotus respectively 
Yeah. And it proves the point about how difficult it is to over- overtake around this place because Werner was behind Alesi looking the much quicker car. He was well, I think on he put his on, tail. I, I think he was, he was, Werner was on pole. And, uh, you know, if anybody doesn't know who Marco Werner is, he's a three times Le Mans winner. You know, he is not an idiot at all. He's a, he's an incredibly accomplished Formula One driver. Um, and I think he put it on pole by either one and a half or two seconds. So, which is two, loads yeah. around there. Yeah. Um, but Alessi got ahead at the start. And, and the wonderful thing about that race is that it shows that, you know, people say, well, there's no overtaking, but sometimes, and you remember it's like, it was like, uh, Senna and Mansell in 92. You know, Mansell never got past Senna, but oh my God, the spectacle of watching him try, um, you know, that was 98% of it, wasn't it? And it was, um, I mean, what, I mean, it was an absolutely compelling, um, thing to watch and the other thing that was that really struck me about it i mean one of the things that monaco does is because no one's often going very fast it does allow cars to follow each other in a way you don't get on the on the really quick circuits because of the the aero problems of having to follow another car through a quick corner um and also compound that with you know 1970s cars which basically have no downforce compared to the cars of today and you can literally just glue yourself to someone's tail. And so when you see it, you're not sort of, you know, waiting for the other car to turn up. Sometimes you're looking, it's a head-on shot, you see one car, and you suddenly realise, actually, there's another one behind it, and it's so close, you can't even see the thing. Um, and it's just wonderful viewing, isn't it? It is. So there, there wasn't an overtake. There was an incident, actually, um, towards the end of the race. Um, but there, there, Werner didn't manage to pull the overtake at any point. Um, but the, the excitement of that is that you, you, can, you can see how much quicker the trailing, the following car is, and you sense the frustration building and building in the helmet. And the car in front, you sense the pressure of defending that position, lap after lap. You, f- you see the pressure yeah. building, building. But, and you, it's- but you also see the skill of the driver of the yeah. car in front. You can see Alesi. You know, Alesi must be, what's Alesi now? He's probably 60 now. Um, but, you know, there is a man who has got such a wise old head on his shoulders, who's been around that place so many times, and he knows to the millimetre where to put his car. Um, and yeah, and he knows pretty much that unless he cocks up, and we, we can argue about what happened in the end, which finally put him out of the race, but unless he cocks up, Werner is just going to get more and more frustrated uh, and more and more wound up, and therefore he is going to increase the chance of Werner making a mistake, which would increase his chance of winning the race. So just to watch that, it's a, it's a kind of a sort of a more sort of cerebral type experience, but just to sort of look at the way he's positioning the car, look at the lines he's taking compared to the lines that he would take if there wasn't a car up literally on the back of his gearbox. Um, yeah, I find it fascinating. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, that's from the historic. Hopefully we'll see something similar from the, the actual Grand Prix this weekend. Um, but you've made this point in a post uh, that will go up on the Instagram account and on the app um, today. The, the Monaco Grand, <clears throat> Grand Prix is a race where actually qualifying could be more exciting than the race itself because, well, because overtaking is so hard, qualifying becomes utterly critically important yeah. to, to a driver's weekend. Really, though, it's the skill, isn't it, yeah. of driving yeah. one of those cars, and they are big now when you see one in person they are enormous they're long they're also wide we we know they've got more than a thousand horsepower um they've got unbelievable aero uh and so they're they're going around that place so quickly 
Um, Hamilton's pole time from 2019, the race didn't run in 2020, of course. It was a one minute 10. Um, and that means he averaged 106 miles per hour. Average. And you have to bear in mind that Monaco, Monaco has got the slowest <laughs> corner on the entire calendar, the Lowe's hairpin. And, I mean, they're just rolling through there, aren't they? They're cranked over on full lock. But also, I mean, Raskas as well must be, or Anthony yeah. knows the sort of the one that goes back onto the pit. I mean, that yeah. must also be you know, the second slowest corner mm. in mm. Formula One. It's so tight, and they're doing 106 miles an hour around their average. <sighs> oh, staggering. Um, but the, it, yeah, it's the skill, isn't it, of putting together a pole lap around that place yeah. that's just yeah. staggering. Yeah. Um, and when a driver, I mean, we, I, I guess we all recall the Senna lap from was it 88 or 89, when he was just like hours ahead of even Prost in the same car. And I think Senna said that, I mean, that was one of the times, wasn't it, when he sort of made some kind of reference to, you know, God giving him a hand and that sort of thing. And he, he, felt, he felt that, yeah. yeah, it almost wasn't him driving the car. And if you watch it and, you know, this was the time when they had to take their hands off the steering wheel to change gear and he's opposite locking it and he's changing gear. And, and, and you just watch it and you, and I, you can kind of see where it comes from because you're watching a human do something a human really shouldn't be able to do. Um, and it is, it is, utterly spellbinding and today when you when you've got these massive open circuits with all the runoff in the world um you know cars go very fast and that's you know that's impressive i guess but uh, it, 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 a lot of the time there are no consequences other than maybe a few tenths off your lap time or maybe you'll even have a little bit of a spin but there aren't really any big consequences to getting it wrong and so you can be more relaxed about how you do it than monaco it goes track barrier, literally track barrier. And to get the most out of a lap is to, well, it's, it's also to take the greatest possible risk and to have that sort of controlled aggression that you need to do that. And yet at the same time, marshal that with the discipline that allows you to have the precision to come with. I mean, you know, there are some drivers who will tell you that they actually use the barriers to help them turn into the corner, but they will just <laughs> brush a barrier i don't know i'm you know i'm not sure i've seen it i'm not sure it happens but you know i'm not not, i know that claim has been made in the past but even if you see them and they are coming you know it's not inches away it's centimeters it's millimeters away it is if you are kind of a student of motor racing or an observer of motor racing and you just want to watch talent and skill in its most easily observed form because that's the thing is you can just see so clearly you know, because cars aren't doing big opposite lock slides, so you can't enjoy cars for the, you know, the way they used to drift or anything like that. But you can at Monaco see the skill in a way I don't think you can see at any other circuit. And it is mesmerizing. That's very true. Yeah, a big, wide, expansive, purpose-built circuit. You, don't, you can't appreciate the millimetric precision of a pole lap, can you? You really can't because to the, to the eye, it just appears that most of them are doing broadly the same thing. But at Monaco... Through the, the, the swimming pool sequence, for instance, it's a really quick sequence of left, right, it's, you know, sweeping bends. And they're so close to the barriers, the commitment on the way in. Oh, yeah, I mean, qualifying is maybe more exciting than the race around that place. Um, Can be, certainly. Mm, I, I just want to quote a, a bit, little bit of your work back to you. 
Okay, you write, is it just the money, the yachts, the wincingly expensive hotels, the Grimaldis, the sheer glamour of the place that, that, that makes it the world's most famous Grand Prix and the one drivers want to win the most? No, there's far more to it than that. It's a, I, some people might suspect that the Monaco Grand Prix is, is, such, is the occasion that it is because you get all these Hollywood A-listers turn up, all those yachts are there, the hotels cost $20,000 a night, all that rubbish, but it's... For a motorsport fan, genuinely, it is, a, it is the spectacle of a great race around there and qualifying that makes it good. And that's why the drivers want to win it, isn't it? Because it's where they prove their skill um, over and above their rivals. Yeah, I mean, OK, there have over the occasion, there has been, I can't remember them all, but there have been times when people who you wouldn't regard as an absolutely world-class driver has won the Monaco. I mean, Olivia Panis in 1996. Mm, mm. Um, but those are fairly... Because of circumstances. circumstances. Because of circumstances. What I would say is that in all normal circumstances, you have to be an incredible driver to win the Monaco Grand Prix. Because apart from anything else, you have to have got up the front to begin with. Um, and so, yeah, it, 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 it is a circuit which I think rewards and exhibits the best driving um, more than any other. Mm. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, now, we're talking about this race and about how special it is, and neither of us has actually been to it. So it's not too late, people. If you've got a yacht in the harbour and you've got space for a couple of idiots, we're quite happy to jump on a plane to Nice and get in a taxi <laughs> along to Monaco. So I'll be keeping an eye on the intercooler DMs on Instagram. Um, <laughs> but, Andrew, you've, you have actually raced there haven't you yes i did i did in 2014 um oh yeah i, I mean pfft. yes i mean in many ways it was it's certainly the most privileged thing i've ever done um mm. with the steering wheel in my hand um uh, i got to race a c-type jaguar um in the historic in the historic yeah and the reason it happened was for one year only in 1952 they won the, they ran the monaco grand prix to sports car regulations um, and this C-Type Jaguar um, was in that race, came sixth, I think, with Tommy Wisdom driving it. And I think it was the first car home behind. I mean, there was an endless procession of Ferraris at the front. Um, and so, yeah, in 2014, I got to drive. And I, I mean, I've, I've, I've obviously, I've been incredibly lucky to have driven cars at, you know, at Spa on the Ring and Le Mans and that sort of thing. And I wouldn't have said before I went there that I would have got excited, as excited about driving a car at Monaco um, as I would have done at some of those other places, because it was never in on my sort of list of places where I just had to go and drive a car. Um, and I then went and, because I wanted to learn the circuit, um, Darren Turner very kindly lent me a bit of sim time. Um, so I went and got into sim and sort of just learnt my way around the circuit and that sort of thing. And, and that didn't get me um, excited about it. And there is, it's only when you're out there doing it and in fact, funnily enough, it was only really during the race. Um, so I went out there and did qualifying, and that just scared me because the car was unspeakably valuable. It was also it was also going to do the Miller Millia immediately afterwards. So it was literally going to be driven from Monaco to Brescia, and then it was going to go and do the Miller Millia. So I was kind of like, you know, you cannot damage this thing. And so I was totally intimidated. Um, and there were also, there all were the usual historic racing, you know, superheroes in ridiculously quick cars who take no prisoners around there. And I was you know, quite scared of getting in their way and getting tangled up in something. Um, and so, yeah, the whole thing for me at the beginning and through qualifying was, it's an amazing thing to do, but I suspect this is something that I will appreciate more having done it 
than I do doing it. Um, and I had I decided that I wanted to qualify right down the back um, because I didn't want to get involved in any nonsense. I'm going to say um, that next time I go racing, I just no, no, well, no, well, ha- well, well, hang on, well, no, except, except I didn't. I failed to qualify down oh. the back. <laughs> Because what I failed to appreciate was that at least half the group was even more scared than me. Oh. <laughs> so, so I qualified somewhere. I mean, I qualified in the worst possible place. I was right in the middle. Yeah. Oh, well, um, well done. Of this grid. <laughs> well, um, and um, it was fraught. I mean, the start was. I was just thinking. I, I did lose. I did lose a few paces off the start. I can remember some maniac in a Ferrari coming behind me and just launching into San Devote and just kind of hoping that it would be all right. Oh, uh, and I just wasn't in. I wasn't in a position um, in in any way, uh, you know, mentally or emotionally to take that kind of risk with with that kind of car. Um, but then I started. After a few laps, I started getting a bit of rhythm and there was somebody I knew who was in a, an Aston Martin DB3 and I knew he, that he was a safe and sensible driver. And so we started having a bit of a, you know, a, a bit of a chase. Um, and I did get past him actually. Um, but then it just, I can't really explain it, but it just suddenly started to flow. And I suddenly began to realize that I was having the time of my life going around. The, the bit where you, so you come out the tunnel fine the tunnel is kind of the tunnel's really challenging in something like that because it's not quite flat and the cars are starting to oversteer towards the exit and it's kind of like oh okay fine you know and you just kind of have to think about what you're in um and then there's that rather naggy little chicane which is horrible but from there through to back the quick left and then into the entrance to the swimming pool that you're talking about oh my goodness it's just (laughs) and the noise is completely different because it's all bouncing off the buildings Mm. And you're sitting there, and, yeah, and what you're trying hardest to do is not think, I'm racing around Monaco. Because if the moment that you start to get all, all sort of misty-eyed about it and get overtaken by the sense of occasion, that's when you're going to stick it in the wall. So you just have to think, it's just another race, just another race. But it kind of it carries you away. And then I got, this will sound so well, wanky, frankly, but uh, I, I, I came across Alan Decadene, as you do, in another C-type. I mean, it just sounds ridiculous just even sitting here talking about it, but this is what happened. And he was, and I, I knew, the, so the other thing was, um, I was in a completely standard C-type. This car, it's, 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 what, it's the, just about the oldest surviving C-type. It's certainly one of the most original. And it, unlike so many C-types, which have been whizzed up to go racing, this one hasn't. It's, you know, standard two SU carburettors, you know, nothing clever in the engine. And there were some very quick C-types up the front. In fact, one won the race with Al Buncombe driving it. But I knew the car that Decadene was in was as standard as mine. And I thought, well, if I can keep up with Alan Decadene, who's been on a podium at Le Mans around Monaco, then that's kind of okay. Um, and I was able to do that. So I was really, wow. really pleased with myself. And then towards the end of the race, the only, other, the only difference between the cars that I knew was that I had disc brakes and he had drums. And I was just kind of hoping that towards the end of the race, he'd start to run out of brakes, which he did. So I, I overtook Alain Decadene in a C-type at Monaco. Um, and, well, it would have been fine. But in fact, because of all the places I lost at the start, I, ended up, I think I ended up finishing exactly where I'd started the race. But, uh, yeah, well, I mean... That's an outcome, though. That's fantastic. Wow. Well, I mean, the car, the, I mean, the car, the car wasn't damaged. So that was the only outcome I, I, I was particularly concerned about. But I think of all the places, you know when you race at Le Mans, racing at Le Mans is every bit as exciting as you expect it's going to be. And it's the same at Spa and it's the same at Nürburgring. Racing at Monaco was, in terms of my expectations, 
was so much better than I was expecting it to be. I was kind of expecting, as I said, I was expecting it to be all about the sense of occasion and the sort of wow and raising Monaco, but not about the actual driving experience itself. And it absolutely was. It was fabulous. Mm. And that is more than enough about me. <laughs> Thank you. For that was, I really enjoyed listening to that. God, that was interesting. It just sounds like an awesome, awesome occasion. Um, such is. a privilege to get to race there. It is. It I, is. I think is. listening to you describe it, the key to enjoying the Monaco Grand Prix as, as a spectator is just trying to understand what it is that the drivers are having to do in that moment, perhaps in a quali lap. Just, and that's where we need people who have done it to yeah. try and describe it to us, isn't it? That's why because we need Karen. Yeah. That's why we need Karen Chandler to write this piece. And I, yeah. I, yeah, hopefully that will, that will help do that job. Um, God, I'm looking forward to reading that. Okay, you won't thank me for this next bit, but I'm going to quiz you slightly. Yes, I'm going to say now that I have prepped for completely the wrong podcast. I've got lots of notes here. Yeah, for next week's episode. Yeah, for next week's episode. Yeah, well, because, well, because we were deciding whether to do a Monaco one or a something else one. And I, for yeah. some reason, I got in my head we're doing the something else one. So believe me, next week I'm going to be all over it. But yeah. this week. Um, so, so this really is coming off the top of my head. So, okay. um, all, for all, all the stuff I get wrong, uh, mm. apologies in advance. Well, I, no, I think you're going to surprise yourself. Okay, who? Uh, where should we start? Two cars over the years have ended up in the drink in the harbour. Well, I know what one of them is. I'm trying to think of what the other is. Okay, so can you name one of the drivers? Yeah, Ascari in the D50. Um, yeah. In the okay. Lancia. Good, well done. This is according to Wikipedia, so I'm going okay. with it. Someone will have to let us know if it's actually wrong. But Paul Hawkins. Oh, yes. Australian. Yeah. Very oh, okay. good driver. Really? Killed at Alton Park in 1969 and a little T70, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, wow. Yes, I think he did, didn't he? Hawkins. Mm. Yes, he did. He did yeah. end up in the drink. Yeah, there are, there are oh, photographs well of it yeah, just tumbling into the water. That must be a frightening yeah. moment. Um, although, yeah. were they strapped in then? Maybe not. No harnesses at that point. So, what, what year did Hawkins? Mean, uh, Ascari certainly. It was. It was six. Wouldn't have been. He probably. Uh, no, he probably wouldn't have been. No, he might have come out. Come out of the car. I mean, Ascari was. I think Ascari. He might have broken his nose, um, but he certainly popped up and swam to a boat and mm. got fished out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and handed a glass of champagne. Um, who? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Graham Hill. Um, yes. Mr. Monaco, how many did he win? Cinque. Five. Well done, well done. But the record belongs to who with how many? Michael, I would think. Ah, no. No? No. Oh, let me just. No, it's not, but I will just check how many Michael Schumacher won. Um, he won five, so he, he matched Graham Hill. So someone has won six. Lewis hasn't won six, has he? No, no Lewis hasn't won very many. I think Lewis has only won three, actually. Three, yeah. Same as Nico Rosberg, which is interesting. You'll kick yourself. So, the the answer is uh, really obvious. Senna, yeah. Senna, presumably. Yeah, yeah. Senna. yeah. Okay. He's, yeah. he's won six. Um, cool. Okay. Yeah, okay, good. Uh, what else have we got, then? Uh, let's talk about the 1982 race. And you'll, you'll remember who won it. Yes, I do remember who won it. It was his first Grand Prix win. Yeah, okay. Well, I, do you know what? It's so complicated that I'm just going to read it out to you um, because it's... The, Look, the, can, I have a, can, I, can I have a stab at it? Okay, okay. Because, because I, I want to have a stab at it, okay? Okay. And then you tell me how wrong I'm going to get it. It was the craziest finale to a Grand okay. Prix ever, surely. Um, so, I, I don't know if that can be up for debate. So go on. Okay, so on 
So Reniano led the first bit and then Prost led for a long time. Prost was going to win it until he stuck it in the wall. Yeah, wet track. And then, and then Patrese found himself leading and absolutely going to win. But then he spun mm-hmm. and fell off, mm-hmm. which let through someone like... It was either De Cesaris or Derek Daly uh, or Peroni. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't do this. What I can tell you is that at one stage in that, on those last lap or two, um, Patrese was leading and then spun out and clearly wasn't then going to win the race. And then any one of Daly, De Cesaris and Peroni was absolutely going to win the race until they either ran out of fuel or broke down. And in the end, the one person who was absolutely not going to win the race because he'd already fallen off, Patrese, got back on and finished the race. And it's the only race where the people who came second and third didn't cross the finishing line. They both retired. Um, That's but they great. were second and third on the run at the finish. Uh, am I anywhere near? Yeah, you are very near. You are. Um, and Patrese was only able to win because he, he bump-started his car um, to get it going again. Where, where was that? On the run down to the hairpin or something? It was run down. Did he, did he not bump-start it in reverse? Did he, was he did not he? pointing the wrong way? <laughs> I've got a funny feeling he might have bumped it in reverse. That might be my brain playing tricks on me. And then went on to win this bonkers Yeah, but he was off the circuit and he'd stalled. Yeah. And he still won the race. It's amazing, isn't it? That is bizarre. I think think Murray said, uh, actually not that long ago, Murray said it was in all his years of going and watching motor racing. And don't forget, Murray was watching motor racing until almost until the day he died. It was the maddest thing he'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just phenomenal. It's on YouTube. You go and find it. 1982 Monaco Grand Prix. Incredible. Um, okay, let me tell you a couple of other things that you might not know. Um, it takes six weeks to erect the circuit, barriers, um, grandstands, pit garages, all the curbs and stuff that have to go down, um, and three weeks to pull it all down. Um, so, 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 so that's why they do the historics, the Formula E, yeah. and the Grand Prix all in the same Mm, because it's probably really frustrating if you live in Monaco isn't it and you have no interest in motor racing and there's all this noise and all these people and all these barriers and the roads are closed and you can't get to where you need to be if if you live in Monaco you've probably got somewhere else to go as well well that's fair enough yeah true (laughs) a little holiday home or five Um, we need to cover two more um, sort of notable incidents notable occasions from the Monaco Grand Prix over the years we're not going to do them in full detail because to be blunt, you're writing about them in full detail for the Intercooler app, um, but we're going to tease them a little bit here. Um, so the, the race was first held in 1929, um, and can you tell us who it, was, who it was won by? It was a great battle between the fantastic Rudolf Caracciola in a 7-litre supercharged Mercedes. Can you imagine what a 7-litre supercharged Mercedes would have been like to wrestle around there in 1929? Um, and a, a, a strange... Well, I say straight, a mysterious bloke called, well, he had, he had various names. Some people just called him Williams. Some people called him Grover Williams. Some people called him William Grover Williams. Um, but it's, he's genuinely referred to, I think, as Williams in, uh, in inverted commas, who was, um, he was actually, he had a, I think he had an English father and a French mother. Um, and in a Bugatti Type 35B, um, which I know it came, it came up for sale, uh, I suppose, 10, 15 years ago. I think Bonham's had it. Um, and it was the most original um, 
pre-war Grand Prix racing car I think that had ever been offered for sale. I mean, it was an absolute timepiece. Um, and so, yeah, and um, are, are we going to go into what happened to him after that? Uh, no, a little not. bit. All, 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 okay, all I will say is that um, he, he won a few other things, but his, um, he went off uh, when war broke out um, and joined the special operations executive um, and was dropped into France as a spy to help um, the resistance fight the war. And the rest, I'm afraid, you'll have to um, see the story on the app when I get round to writing it. <laughs> Extraordinary story. Um, okay, the other one that we need to talk about briefly is... Uh, I can't remember the year, actually. I haven't noted it down. But it was um, when Senna was in the Tolman. Um, and yeah, he had 84, that, 1984. 84. And yeah. he had that storming race. Um, yes. And in fact, there was somebody else in that race who was even more yeah, of a again, hero. I don't want to give too much of it away. Um, in fact, I'm, not, I'm going to give hardly anything of it away, although you could obviously look it up. But, but Senna qualified 13th and should have won it. By all rights, in my mind, he did win it. But there was another bloke... It's like, do you remember Donington 93, Senna in the West, that opening lap, uh, and, and his win to through that race? And everybody remembers that, and rightly so. It was one of his greatest drives. Nobody remembers Rubens Barrichello in that race. I think it was like his fifth Grand Prix. He overtook more cars than Senna. Wow. Nobody remembers. Wow. And similarly, in Monaco in 84, there was somebody else mm. who qualified right down the back who overtook more cars than Senna. Um, so I shall be writing about that on the app this week as well. Um, and, 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 and indeed about that entire extraordinary race yeah will you be mentioning who the clerk of the course was <laughs> yes I will yes I okay. will because he was he, he, he's, he's one of my heroes um, but he was resp- responsible for perpetrating what I always regard as a gross miscarriage of justice <laughs> ah well that, you've teased it so well there uh, if you you can either go and research that for yourselves or you can check out the intercooler app later this week when the whole story will be up there um Okay, the, the only other thing then that we should mention about the Monaco Grand Prix is that it's part of the Triple Crown, the unofficial Triple Crown, um, that also includes Le Mans and the Indy 500. Um, and it's so far only ever been won by one person. And of course, you know exactly who that is. I do. Mm. No, I'm joking. Graham Hill. <laughs> Graham Hill, yeah. So Mr. Monaco, he won the Indy 500 as well, and he won Le Mans. Um, who else has come close? So... Uh, recently, Fernando Alonso, he's, he did win Monaco, he has won Le Mans, um, and he's, he's started the Indy 500, or he's, he's competed in the race once, hasn't he? And he was leading it and until yeah. his engine blew. He, he had a really strong chance of winning the thing. Um, I mean, I, we, we did know Mario and, Sorry, yeah. did Mario Andretti win Monaco? I mean, he was obviously the Formula 1 world champion in 1978. Well, he, um, he must have won the other races. Well, you see, no, he's never won Le Mans. Oh, okay. He he came second, um, and I mean, he's obviously won the he won, he's obviously won the Indy five hundred. He won the Indy five hundred as long ago as nineteen sixty nine. Um, don't know if he actually won in Monaco. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that lots of people have done two out of three, haven't they? I mean, AJ <laughs> yeah, Foyt, yeah, yeah. AJ Foyt did two out of three. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, lots of people have, but um, very, very well. I mean, Graham Hill's the only person to have done all three. Mm. Yeah, and so, yeah, I mean, we know Alonso is not going to do it in the next couple of years because he's tied into Alpine um, for the full Formula One campaigns. But it would be, I don't know, it would be good fun, wouldn't it, to watch him get back out to India? I, I suspect he wants to do it at some point. Um, he he probably feels like there's unfinished business there, um, and he's certainly got the the ability. But it's just it just speaks to the romance of motorsport, doesn't it? 
these sort of unofficial crowns that we like to, uh, you know, that we that we like to hand out from time to time. Only Graham Hill has managed it. Um, why why is it that he's the only one? Is it? I suppose it's because there are, there are plenty of guys who have lots of US guys have won the Indy Five Hundred, um, but it's it's unusual for them to also compete right at the front of the Formula yeah, 1 grid. I, th- I, I, think it's, I think it is increasingly difficult. So, you know, Graham Hill did it because, you know, he could race in Indy and Formula 1 at the same time. And at Le Mans, in fact, he actually, he actually won Le Mans in 72 when he was still a Formula 1 driver. But his, you know, it had been, I think he won his last, I think it's the last race he ever won, actually, was Monaco in 69. Um, so by 1972, he was, you know, his career as a Formula 1 driver was still going on, but it was, you know, well, well past his peak. Um, but you could do all these races at the same time. I mean, you know, um, Jim Clark won at Indy and obviously won in Formula One. Um, and so it, it could be done. But these days, unless you're going to do an Alonso and you stop Formula One and go off and do Indy or you stop Formula One and go off and do sports cars and then come back. And you have to be kind of like an Alonso figure, figure for that even to be a possibility. And I think what happens is most people... Um, you know, frankly, Formula One has to be the first because if you don't get into Formula One as a youngster, you're, you're never going to make it. And then you kind of, you'd have to then try and tick off Indy and, you know, and Le Mans. After that, you'd probably go to Indy because, you know, you could still win Le Mans when you're in your, oh, I don't know, I suppose you could still win Le Mans when you're in your sort of late 40s. I don't know. But it's, it's just a question of time, isn't it? And just finding the time in your career when you can't do these things um, at the same time, you have to do them one after the other these days in a way that you didn't in the past. Mm. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. That, that's, that's why it's more difficult. Mm. It ties into our versatile racing drivers conversation from a couple of weeks ago, doesn't it? Um, yeah, it does. All the, all the challenges there. Um, okay, well, we need to end this podcast by uh, giving some predictions for this weekend's race. I want pole and winner, please. Well, as I said, Lewis has only won it three times, um, but uh, you know, I just have to... I think I just have to back him. I mean, I think I think he might be getting into Max's head. I think that Lewis is. I think he is just in an extraordinary place at the moment. Uh, it, it's, it's really boring, but I, I, I'd have to say it's going to be Lewis and Lewis, wouldn't you? I think you're right, but just for the fun of it, I'm going to say Max and Max, um, and we'll we'll reflect on these predictions next week. Um, and well, all that is left to say is. Go and check out the app. Just search the Intercooler on the App Store. There are also links um, on our Instagram account to our website where uh, you'll be able to download the app. Um, You can start your free trial. Uh, It's really easy to cancel if you decide the app isn't for you, uh, but we think it will be. So just go and check it out and uh, come back next week because we'll be talking uh, about more motorsport and Andrew will have done some preparation for this one. I will be unbelievably (laughs) prepared, unlike this week. (laughs) Good. Thank you, everybody. Uh, We'll see you again next week. See you next week. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.